If you would, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18, please. Deuteronomy 18, we've been studying some of the key events in the life of Jesus, and last time we considered the Incarnation. And we considered it by answering questions that are posed by two Advent or Christmas hymns. What child is this? And who is he in yonder stall? But we began by looking at how the Incarnation was foretold long, long before by the prophets in the Old Testament beginning with the promise of a seed bruising the serpent's head and ending with that promised seed, that savior being born into the world. And then we saw from John chapter one that that infant who was born of a virgin in Bethlehem was none other than the infinite God. Because John takes us back to the beginning and he tells us that Jesus had no beginning because Jesus Christ is in fact the infinite God. Amen. We're told that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and Jesus of course is the word who was in the beginning with God and who was God. And so we considered the reality of the word and the revelation of the word and the identification of the word and then the reconciliation to the word. And so tonight I want to continue looking at the incarnation from yet another perspective. Because a savior coming into the world is certainly a wonderful and necessary event. And while people might recognize and think on that event, especially at Christmas time, I'm not sure how many go beyond that. And we need to go beyond that, don't we? Too often it's people simply giving lip service to the incarnation or perhaps reading about the birth of the Savior in kind of a cavalier and shallow way. And it's possible for any of us to do that, of course. So I want to take a couple more messages to reflect on what it is that makes our Savior such a glorious Savior and reflect on what he does for us that makes him such a glorious Savior. <clears throat> because the story of the birth of Jesus is only one element in a magnificent tapestry of events that has occurred in history by which God provided a savior for us. And it's not so much when he came or where he came, but what he did when he came. And the purpose for which he came that is so important to us and that lies at the very heart of the gospel. And so we have to ask, this Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, born in all the poverty and lowliness of the circumstances of his birth, what is it about him that makes him such a glorious savior for us? It's not enough to ask about the identity of the Savior, but what is it that makes him such a great Savior? The reason he left heaven and came to earth was not simply to become a baby or even to become a man. It was as the mediator that he should do a particular work. And he is our great Savior, not so much because of the place to which he came, but the reason for which he came. And the reason for which he came so is so that he would fulfill all that God would ask him to do and that he would finish all the work that God gave him to do. And so one way to answer our question, one avenue into that question, is simply to reflect on what has come to be called in theology, the offices of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills the work of Redeemer and Savior by fulfilling distinct offices and duties and functions and responsibilities. The work that was given him to do, that he does so magnificently and he does so perfectly, that's what makes him a savior. It's not just that he was born, but he was born to be something. He was born to do something. That this person, this Jesus, should fulfill particular duties and responsibilities apart from which we could never be saved and apart from which we can never enjoy the blessings of God's salvation. And there are, of course, three offices. There's the office of a prophet, the office of a priest, and the office of a king. So with the incarnation, we have the coming of a savior, yes, but it's much more than that. And it goes far beyond that because we also have the coming of the final prophet. 
and we have the coming of a faithful priest, and we have the coming of a righteous king, and all three are absolutely essential to our salvation. And tonight, I would like to consider two of them. I would like to consider the coming of the final prophet and the coming of a faithful priest. But before we jump in, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thankful for the privilege we have to gather around it. And Lord, I just pray that you would be honored, that you would be highly, highly exalted tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in Deuteronomy 18, let's take note of verse 18, where God says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, like unto Moses, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. First of all, Jesus is the great and glorious Savior because he is God's prophet to us. He has been designated a prophet, and he comes to us with words from God. And here in this great passage, Moses is prophesying that God is going to raise up a prophet. Now, Moses himself is, of course, a remarkable prophet. He was the prophet with whom God spoke face to face. You remember in the book of Numbers in chapter 12, when Miriam and Aaron, the sister or brother of Moses, spoke against him, that God came to Moses and he said something to him. He said something very interesting to him. If you would turn to Numbers chapter 12, please. Numbers chapter 12. In verse 1, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman who he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out ye three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak to him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. Now that's really something. Moses was a prophet, but God said, I'm not speaking to him in a vision or a dream. But, verse 8, with him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. That's the kind of prophet Moses was, not one with whom God spoke in visions or dreams or dark speeches, but one with whom he spoke face to face, mouth to mouth, one to whom he spoke plainly and made his will clear and forthright. In fact, there was never a prophet like Moses. The book of Deuteronomy ends with that assertion. If you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34. In verse 10, it says, And there arose not a prophet since in Israel, like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And yet here is this great prophet Moses, and he is predicting the coming of an even greater prophet than himself. He's anticipating the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to him, that one day a prophet would come like himself, to whom God would give words for his people, and to whom his people would give attention and must listen to. 
Now, it's very interesting that in Deuteronomy 18, where we began reading, Moses reminds the people of the context in which that prophecy was given. If you would, let's go back to Deuteronomy 18. It was at Horeb, where there was great fire and thundering and lightning, and the presence of God was a terrifying presence to the people, and their cry went up. In verse 15, the Lord thy God will raise unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. And notice God's response to Moses in verse 17. And the Lord said unto me, they have well spoken that which they have spoken. God said, it's good that the people recognize this. It's good that they feel this. They have well spoken. They cannot listen to my voice directly. They couldn't handle it. It would be too much for them, too overwhelming for them, to the point that they would die. But, God said, I want them to hear my words nonetheless. They cannot hear them directly. They cannot bear them directly. If I open my mouth, it will consume them, but they need to hear my words. It is essential that they hear my words. And so that they will hear my words, I will raise up a prophet, a prophet Moses like you, and you will tell the people, you will go and tell the people, you will listen to this prophet. Now, what is that? What would you say God is doing there? I would say God is showing a tremendous and remarkable act of grace. The people are not fit to hear the voice of God directly. It would kill them. So what does God do? He raises up an office. He raises up a ministry. He raises up an intermediary. He raises up a prophet through whom he would communicate to his people and through whom he would make his voice and his message and his will to be known. And Moses is now saying what God said at Horeb, he will eventually fulfill. Now, there would be other prophets that would come. There would be many prophets that would come. Hebrews 1 tells us that God spoke to the fathers in time past in various ways and by various prophets. But never did the prophet come of whom Moses spoke here. Isaiah was not like Moses. Jeremiah was not like Moses. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, these great men of God, they were not like Moses. There were many great prophets in the Old Testament, but the one of whom Moses spoke here never appeared on the pages of the Old Testament in person. It was only at last with the incarnation, with the coming of Jesus Christ, with the birth of the Son of God, that the prophet of whom Moses spoke actually came. And when he came, even the crowds, as they listened to him, and as they watched him perform miracles and confound people, they recognized something like this. If you were to turn to John chapter 6. When he fed the 5,000 in this chapter, notice what they said in verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. They recognized that there was something instinctively remarkable about him. And they wondered if he was a fulfillment of this prophet because they heard about it. They were told of this prophet to come. No one could fulfill the terms of this prophecy but him. So when we read those words in Deuteronomy, we read them in light of their fulfillment. And we know that the one whom God promised to send, he has come. 
And we need a savior who will be a prophet. We need to hear the words of God. We need to have the wonder of God's salvation revealed to us and disclosed to us. We could never know. We could never be saved unless God sent a prophet to us. And so he sent Jesus into the world. The same God who spoke at sundry times and diverse manners through the fathers by the prophets has in the last days spoken to us by his son. The last prophet, the final prophet. Those who heard Isaiah preach could not say we have heard the final prophet. Those who watch Jeremiah and Ezekiel act out and dramatize the word of God could not say that is the final way God is going to communicate to us. But we have heard the final prophet. We have seen God's final way of dealing with sinners. There is no other way to come. There's no other message to come. There's no other prophet to come. The last word has been spoken. We have a complete Bible tonight, and we know that the completeness and sufficiency of Scripture is predicated on this final prophet. We don't need another Bible. Everything we have is sufficient for us. There is enough in the Bible for a person to be saved. There's enough in the Bible for a person to come to know God and his desire and his will and his expectations. We have the truth tonight. It's within our reach. We don't have to go searching for it because the final prophet has spoken. The great prophet has spoken. Jesus Christ has spoken. God sent him to us. And so with that, I want to consider a few things that are emphasized in our passage in connection with our prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 18. First of all, he's a prophet by grace. He has been raised up by grace. Verse 18, I will raise them up a prophet. Verse 15, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee. We read the same thing in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7. God said, I will raise them up. I will do it. I will do it, said God. The initiative is all his. For those of us who are saved, who told us Jesus was a savior? Well, maybe it was something that we read in the gospel tract that opened our eyes to the truth of who he is. Maybe there were people who spoke to us along the way and we heard and our ears were open and with it our heart was open and we believed what was spoken. Maybe it was a sermon that God used to bring us to the light of his salvation, the light of his truth. Maybe it was all of those things. But I'll say this, in the final analysis, when it's all said and done, the ultimate reality is that God raised up a prophet and he's the one who told us. God sent Jesus Christ by his grace to speak to us by his word through the Holy Spirit, the message of salvation. And if we heard it at all, we heard it because of the grace that came to us. We heard it because of this magnificent provision that God raised up a prophet and commissioned one who was mighty and strong and gracious and compassionate to come and bring the message of salvation to a poor lost world. He had only one son and he made him a prophet to bring his words to our hearing. Wherever the gospel's preached tonight, and wherever the word of God is proclaimed tonight, and wherever the truth is communicated tonight, this prophet is still speaking by the grace of God. His mouth is open, and by his word, he is communicating the message of salvation to us. How does this happen? How does this great word of this great prophet come to us? It comes to us, of course, through the preaching of the gospel. It comes to us through the word of God, as the Bible is opened, and the word of God is unfolded, and read, and explained. It's very interesting. The Spirit of Christ, says Peter, was in the Old Testament prophets. What were they speaking about? What were they pointing to, those Old Testament prophets? They were testifying of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. 
Jesus Christ himself, the great prophet, was speaking about himself through the Old Testament prophets. And so the Old Testament is full of him, full of his grace, full of his glory, full of redemption, full of his death and miracles and offices, full of his wonder and majesty and brilliance and loveliness. and his tra It's all full of him, as is the New Testament, full of his life, full of his death, full of his burial, full of his resurrection, full of the meaning and significance of the cross and the glories of the atonement. By his word, he is speaking to us, and the Bible is simply the transcripts of the words of this great prophet. I will raise them up a prophet. He's a prophet by grace. And oh, how he speaks to us such lovely, beautiful words, doesn't he? Suited to our every need. So every time we hear the gospel, and everywhere the word of God is proclaimed, this great prophet is speaking, and he speaks because of the initiative of grace. And then secondly, let's notice this. He's being raised up from among his brethren. Verse 18, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren. It's such an important aspect of the prophecy, isn't it? A prophet was never someone whom God sent from another country to speak to his people. A prophet wasn't an ambassador from somewhere else. No, God's prophets were always his spokesmen from among his people. God raised them up, designated them, set them apart to be his means of speaking, his mouthpiece, his way of communicating. Moses was raised up from among his brethren. And the final prophet, where does he come from? Where does this great Messiah come from? Well, God says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren. That's why the New Testament begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we considered this to some extent last time, but the book of Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's from among God's people. He's been raised up. He came to his own. David is his father. Abraham is his father. And he comes in a line of Old Testament prophets whom God had raised up and blessed from among his brethren. He's raised up to declare his name to his brethren, as Psalm 22 so beautifully puts it. But it goes beyond that. And that's why the incarnation is so very, very important. Not because it's an end in itself. People tend to make the birth of Jesus an end in itself. They come to worship or perhaps sing hymns or carols that speak of his birth in lowliness, humility. And for many, that's it. It's become an end in itself. But the Bible says no. No, no, no. This magnificent incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. This is God sending the one who will be a spokesman, not only to his people, but to the ends of the earth from among his people. God made a promise to Abraham that through him a great nation would come, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, so that all men everywhere would hear the good tidings of great joy that are to all people. Because this son of Mary, this one born of a virgin, is the last prophet. He's from among his brethren. Now the tragedy, of course, was that although he came to his own, what happened? His own received him not. To his brethren, he became a strange speaker. To his brethren, his words were so intrusive and so offensive. To his brother, he spoke like some foreigner, and they received him not. And is that not the great issue before us tonight? And is that not the great issue that we set before people? Have you received Jesus Christ? But as many as received him, the Bible says, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So he was raised by grace. He was raised from among his brethren. And thirdly, he was raised like Moses to be like Moses. Verse 18, 
I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee. God said, Moses, I'm going to give the people a prophet like you, with whom I've spoken face to face, mouth to mouth, heart to heart. I'm going to send a prophet from heaven who walks from me to be among men, who will bring men the very words and the very conversation of heaven so that people will hear of heavenly things when this prophet speaks. And when he speaks, he will not speak in dark parables or deep mysteries. No, he will speak the things of God in a way that men will know, in a way that men will hear, so that unworthy sinners can hear of salvation and the great kingdom of glory. This great gospel and these great words of this prophet, we have had the privilege to hear, they come to us as this prophet has fulfilled his ministry and the words of God were spoken for us, as if Jesus wanted to take us aside and say, let me tell you what I speak about with the Father. Let me tell you what we want communicated to you, what we want you to hear. Isn't that John's great emphasis in his prologue to his gospel when he declares that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us? Well, who was the word that was made flesh? He's the one, says John, who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God and who was face to face with God and who was daily to the light of God and who speaks intimately with God and who now has come to bring us the very words of God. And this prophet is like Moses yet so remarkably unlike Moses. And God said, I will put my words in his mouth. Do you remember how Jesus expressed that himself in John 17? Let's look there. Let's go to John 17. It's a magnificent passage and a magnificent prayer. Verse 8. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have to believe that thou didst send me. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. What were those words that the Father gave to the Son? They were words of promise, weren't they? They were words by which Jesus was commissioned to do a work and complete a work. They were words by which people would be saved, words by which Jesus would endure the cross and despise the shame. And he communicates to us the words that were communicated to him, and we are caught up in this gracious purpose of salvation, and in Jesus we really have everything that we need for our life and for our salvation. And so we have to ask ourselves a very important question. What am I doing with Jesus the prophet? It's a good question to ask and ponder, isn't it? What am I doing with Jesus the prophet? There were two responses to him when he was in the world. There were those who questioned him. They wanted to know by what authority he was doing the things he was doing. They wanted proof that he really was who he said he was, ignoring all the things that he's doing that should have been proved to them. But they wanted more proof. They wanted a greater sign. They wanted a more spectacular miracle. And instead, do you know what he gave them? He gave them a prophecy. The great prophet gave them a prophecy, a prophecy of his death and his resurrection. He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonas. As Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, why did he do that? Why didn't he blow their minds with something spectacular? 
Why didn't he knock a couple of them dead and say, who else wants to challenge what authority I do what I'm doing? <laughs> he could have. Because he wanted people to believe his word. Because his word is truth. He is God's final prophet who has God's final message, and he wanted people to see and understand that his word, his message, was more important than a miracle, and that his prophecy was more important than the proof they wanted. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. But they didn't want to hear him. They would not stand still and listen and contemplate and take in the words of this great prophet. Notice what even some of his disciples said of his doctrine in John chapter 6. John 6 and verse 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? They found his words on grace and the new birth and salvation and judgment too difficult, too hard to hear, grumbling at them, dismissing them. And so what did they ultimately do? Verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. We need to be careful, don't we? We need to be very, very careful that we don't ever get to the point where we find the words of our Savior, our prophet, too hard to hear. Perhaps too intrusive or too offensive to the point where we turn away and we walk no more with him. It can happen, can it? We can't think that it can't happen to us. It can. But there was another response to him. Notice in verse 68. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And then look at John chapter 2. Verse 22. When therefore he was risen from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. There were people who heard him gladly. And they found in his words such a blessing for their soul that they knew instinctively that they could go nowhere else. That they could listen to no one else because this prophet spoke so fitly. He spoke so appropriately. He spoke to their very situation and they wanted to sit at his feet and listen to the one who had the words of eternal life. And that, of course, is exactly where we need to be. Desiring the words of our Savior. We all know church is where we need to be. But is it really where we desire to be? That's the thing. He's a great and glorious savior because he's an obedient and faithful prophet to the heart and mind and will of God. That's the glorious prospect that the incarnation brings to us. He came to be like us, to speak to us, to be the final prophet so that we might learn to listen and to know God, whom to know is eternal life. He's the magnificent final prophet. But it's not just as a prophet that he fulfills his work as a redeemer. He's also our priest. And here there is once again a prophecy set forth in the Old Testament regarding the priest that was to come. And the same language, very interesting, the same language that was used of the prophet 
is used of the priest. If you would go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, please. First Samuel 2. Notice in verse 35. I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in my heart and in my mind. I will raise him up. That's what God said to Moses about the prophet. We'll see next time that the same language is used of a king where God says, I will raise unto them a righteous king. But here he says, I will raise me up a faithful priest. And once again, we are reminded of the sheer grace that has provided salvation, the grace that sent a savior, the grace that gave that savior a work to do. Not, not just so that he would be glorified, but through him being glorified, we could be saved. God raised up a savior for us. And we can never lose sight of the wonder and the glory and the grace and the love and the mercy that lies behind all the events of the gospel story. God so loved the world that he made provision for them because the world could not provide its own prophet. It could not provide its own priest. It could not provide its own savior. And that's why the doctrine of the virgin birth is so absolutely crucial. It's a reminder that there was never a man born of a woman by ordinary circumstance or ordinary situation that would be adequate to the task of saving people. No, God had to send them. And God sends them miraculously. And God sends them gloriously. And God sends them by way of a virgin's womb. So there's no human paternity. It's all the work of grace. He sends Jesus. God raises them up. Raises them up to be the final prophet. To bring the final message of salvation. Hear ye him, we're told. That's what the Old Testament prophets spoke about, as we said. With one great voice and with one great theme, they spoke of the final prophet. And now he has come, and we hear all about the gracious salvation of God. But why did this prophet have to suffer so? Why did he have to be subject to such scorn and ridicule and mockery and cruelty? Why did he have to be forsaken, even by God? Why did he have to be sacrificed and die as a lamb? Well, because, of course, he's more than a prophet. He's also a faithful priest. And here in Samuel, we have another great messianic prophecy, that of a coming priest. And in Acts chapter 3, we're told that all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. And the days of which Peter is speaking in Acts chapter 3 are the days of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So it's very interesting that the New Testament tells us that in Samuel and in the writings of Samuel, we have a testimony, we have a prophecy of Jesus Christ. The Messiah is in the writings of Samuel and the prophets. And I believe this is one of those places. God says, I will raise me up a faithful priest. Now, why did God say that? Because the priests that were in place at that time had made an absolute mockery of his priesthood. The priesthood that God established for the sake of his people had been utterly corrupted. And we're told here in Samuel about the judgment that would come upon the house of Eli because of it. Now, Eli was, of course, the high priest at Shiloh. He was, in fact, both a judge and a priest in Israel. And his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they too went into the priesthood because their father was a priest. And while they were in there, they took advantage of their position and their father, and they did basically whatever they wanted. 
They were the ones corrupting the priesthood. The law of God was very specific with regard to the sacrifices and which parts belonged to God and which parts belonged to the priest, and they ignored it. They could care less what the law of God said, and they took whatever they wanted, even the parts that belonged to God. And notice how God describes their actions in verse 17. Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Verse 29, wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at my offering? They trampled on it. They abused it. And that's not all they did. They were seducing women at the tabernacle. Verse 22, now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto Israel and how they lay with the women at the assembling at the door of the tabernacle congregation. Now these were the people who were supposed to be closest to God. The ones standing representing the people before God. But instead, notice what they're called in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, and they knew not the Lord. That would be worthless, corrupted people, and they brought God's judgment. Now Eli may have been a fine priest, but he wasn't such a good father. His fault was not restraining the behavior of his two sons. And while he tried to counsel and correct them here in this passage, it was too late. It was too late for that. He preferred them before God. Verse 29, Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. In chapter 3, we're told that he restrained them not. He allowed them to come into the priesthood even though they were not qualified to do so, and now God's judgment was upon them. Verse 30, Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and thy house of thy father shall walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me. For them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, and there shall not be an old man in thine house, and thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation. In all the wealth which God shall give Israel, and there shall not be an old man in thy house forever. So it's a very solemn moment when God says to Eli that his house, his lineage, his family will be cut off. There will not be an old man in his house forever, and the priesthood is going to be taken away from Eli and instead given to someone else. You've been unfaithful, God says to Eli and his family. So I will raise me up a faithful priest. And into this darkness and into this judgment comes this remarkable messianic light, this light of hope that God is not going to utterly cast off his people because of the unfaithfulness of this priest, but he's going to provide a better priest. He's going to raise up a faithful priest who will obey and who will do everything that is in God's heart and everything that is in God's mind. Now, the Bible tells us about the priest that replaced the house of Eli in the time of Solomon. We read in 1 Kings 2 that Solomon, he thrust out Abiathar who was the last in Eli's line to function as a priest. So the word spoken against Eli is fulfilled when Solomon puts Abiathar out of the priesthood, and in his place he puts Zadok. 
So when we read in verse 35 of 1 Samuel 2, I will raise me up a faithful priest, yes, the immediate context is to Zadok, but that, that is only a shadow in the Old Testament of God's greater purpose. purpose. This prophecy is not exhausted when Zadok replaces Eli's house. No, a greater than Zadok is in view here. God is telling us of his greater purpose to come. There will be one, a faithful priest, that he will raise up, a glorious Savior. And we're saying tonight that Jesus Christ is the faithful priest of this great prophecy. So I want to emphasize a few things. Let me emphasize, first of all, that without a priest, we could never be saved. One of the remarkable things about the Old Testament is the grace that is seen there. And one way it is seen is in the priesthood that God established. God was being very gracious and merciful in setting forth the priesthood. Man had separated himself from God. Adam should have been faithful to God, faithful in his worship, faithful in his sacrifice, faithful in his devotion, but of course he wasn't. He was unfaithful and disobedient to God. So he was cast out of the garden. He could not make his way back to God anymore. The flaming sword barred the way. So now all of a sudden there was a need for someone to function as an intermediary between God and man, which was the whole purpose of the priesthood. In a sense, it's the corollary of the office of a prophet. The prophet is the one who comes to us from God, but the priest is the one who enables us to come to God. And the prophets speak about the priests. And the voice of God speaking through the prophets opens up this glorious and magnificent provision that God gives priests to his people. He does not close the door on them utterly and entirely, but he puts this office in Israel, the office of the priesthood, and he says to them and to us, without a priest, it is impossible for us to make our approach to God. So the function of the priest, of course, was to deal with the people's relationship and standing before God. God had determined that he would redeem fallen man to himself, and one way he would do that is symbolized and shown forth in the animal sacrifices that the priests would offer. Those sacrifices demonstrated the death that mankind was doomed to because of sin. They also represented the death that Christ would undergo as the Redeemer. And so the whole sacrificial system reminded the people that God was offended by their sin, and thus they were cut off from the presence of God. It's a very, very serious matter. And so once a year on the, date, date, uh, the great day of atonement, the high priest went within the veil of the tabernacle or the temple, a veil that we said was made and hung with great precision. And they went within the veil to offer a sacrifice and to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, symbolizing the judgment of God upon sin and the price that was being paid. And the people knew he was standing in the immediate presence of God. And they knew he was doing for them inside the veil what he could not do for them outside the veil. And that is exactly what we need. We need a priest. We need someone who will stand on our behalf before God, who will offer the sacrifice, who will remove that flaming sword out of the way so we can make our way of access to God. Now, there were two main problems with that sacrificial system and priesthood in the Old Testament. First and foremost, as we know, it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. What took place in the tabernacle or the temple was simply a picture or a copy or an example of what was to take place in the real tabernacle in heaven. The priests couldn't provide a sacrifice that would take away sins. They didn't have one. Secondly, the priests themselves were at times unfaithful and therefore unfit and unqualified for the job. So what happens then? 
What happens when the priests themselves, the priesthood itself is faithless and disobedient and sinful and God has to come along and judge the priests? What do you do then? Well, here comes this magnificent, Christ-focused messianic prophecy where God says, I will raise me up a faithful priest. I will do what otherwise cannot be done. There will be a means of sinners to come to God. Because although these priests have been unfaithful to the office and have fallen short in their duties and responsibilities, there will come one who will fill the office and duties and responsibilities of the priest, and he will be faithful. What's he going to do, this faithful priest? Well, simply this. He's going to do everything that is in my heart and everything that is in my mind. That's what the house of Eli didn't do. God's will was revealed through the prophets, but God's will was disobeyed by the priests. But God says, I'm going to raise me up a faithful priest. And the outstanding characteristic of this priest will be his utter and his entire obedience and devotion to my will. Is there such a priest? Is there a priest chosen from among men and things pertaining to God of whom it can be said that all that he did, all that inspired him, all that drove him, his great passion was to do the will of him that sent him? Is there one of whom it can be said that at last he has finished all the work that God gave him to do? Is there one who has proved so faithful in his office of the priest of God's people that there is nothing in God's heart or mind or will that he has not done? Is there such a one? Amen. We see tonight that there is. Amen. The one who answers and fulfills this prophecy comes before us in the gospel. He's none other than the babe of Bethlehem, the man of Galilee, the crucified one of Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the faithful priest on whom God raised up and on whom God placed this necessary and essential office. And the astonishing and glorious thing is that this priest has proved what? Faithful. Faithful to his office. Faithful to every obligation put on him. Faithful to every command given to him. Faithful to every duty required of him. He's still faithful. Faithful in life. Faithful in death. Faithful beyond resurrection. Faithful in heaven. He's still doing the work that was given him to do as our great high priest. And what God said of the house of Eli could be said of all the priests of the Old Testament. Not one of them was perfect. Not one of them was unblemished. They were all sinners. Isn't that the argument and weight and burden of the book of Hebrews? None of them continued in office. They all required atonement for their own sins. Not one of them could be the fulfillment of this prophecy. Not even Zadok, who was a type of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the eternal son of God. He's the one who was in the beginning with God and who is God. And yet in order to deal with that flaming sword and in order to give us a way back to God and in order to enable us to make our approach to God, he became a man. And he was chosen from among men, like every priest was, to offer a sacrifice and to do the will of his father. And so we see him in his childhood, obedient to his earthly parents because he was doing all that was in God's heart and mind. And we see him in the temple as a young boy. How fitting that's where he was lost. Other kids would have been lost playing in the woods or running around down the street somewhere. But he was lost in the temple, in the place of the priesthood, in the place of sacrifice, in the place of worship. That's where he was to be found. He was lost, yes, but only to his parents. He was exactly where he should have been because this was his great work to be the great high priest of his people. Do you not know, he said to them, that I must be about my father's business? Nothing was going to deviate him from that calling. Nothing was going to sidetrack him from that task. Here were sons that we just read about who were unfaithful. 
But God said, I give you a son. I give you a son who will be a faithful priest, who is doing even from his youngest age all that is in my heart and all that is in my mind. And we watch him as he grows into maturity and as he enters into his public office, inaugurated by that great spirit baptism from heaven. The magnificent final prophet is also our faithful priest. And he takes his role as a prophet in order to explain to us his duty as a priest. It's an amazing, amazing thing. He told them as a prophet that the Son of Man had to suffer as a priest. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Those sufferings, that's what qualified him to be our great high priest. There he is, the final prophet, revealing himself as the faithful priest doing all that was in God's heart and mind and will, so at last he could say what no other priest ever, ever could. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And in finishing that work, he did not offer some animal as a sacrifice. And he did not put the blood of some bull or goat on that altar. He offered himself as a sacrifice. He put his own blood on that altar. And now the veil in the temple is torn. It is rent in twain. And now the way of access is open. And now the flaming sword has been taken out of the way. And now there is nothing left for a person to do but come by a new and living way, opened up in him and by him in his sacrifice and in his death. Do we see the length and the depth that God went to for sinners? And we're really just giving an overview of what God did for us, aren't we? We are all unfaithful sinners. And that's nothing to get upset about. It's nothing to get offended by. That's just the fact of the matter. Our duty is to obey God, and we really don't do it. It's to be faithful and glorify God. And how often do we come short? And there is a blot and a stain on our every righteousness, and there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Our iniquities have separated between us and our God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible describes a natural man in no good terms. None. That being the case, how can we ever get to heaven when we are what we are. How? There's only one way. The only way it is possible for us to get to heaven is because he is what he is, a faithful priest who has perfectly obeyed God. And right up to the final moment when he dies on the cross, his life is unblemished and unstained and untainted. And he dies as the spotless lamb of God for you and for me. Our faithful priest, there he is, officiating at that great altar for us. And his sacrifice is accepted. And his cries and his petitions are heard. And he comes at last now to enter into the immediate presence of God as our faithful high priest. It's really the most loving, gracious thing, isn't it? that all of my salvation is dependent entirely on what takes place between the Father and the Son. The Father appointing him into this office, the Son undertaking and fulfilling the office, doing all that was required of him, and then going back to the Father. And all the transactions done between the Father and the Son 
are done, why? So that we might benefit. So that we might be saved. So that there might be good news for us. Yes, there is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And the reason he is a Savior is because all that God asked of him, he completed perfectly. So we can say with the hymn writer, O Lamb of God, I come. Why should I stay away when the way is open? Why should I not approach God when there is a faithful high priest? Why should I not make my way immediately to the throne of grace, seeing I have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the Lord Jesus Christ? Why should I not be saved and discover for myself that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Why should I be ashamed to stand up and live for the one who has died for me? The faithful priest that God raised up, that's my hope. That's my salvation, and there is none other. May we trust him and be more willing to live for him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. Thank you so very much for what you've done for us. I, help, I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to think on these things, dwell on them, ponder them often. Help us to be grateful, and Lord, please help us to be more devoted and faithful to serving and living for you. In Jesus' name, amen.